own. So the parsha Shkolem opens up. God says to Moshe, When you take a census of the Jewish people according to their which is their army uh, enrollment, as in they're only counting those who are eligible for the service. Each will pay a kofar nafsho. What does that mean? Kofar nafsho? A payment for their soul. A ransom for their soul. And if you do so, no plague shall become to them. So this is an interesting passage. First of all, this concept of Maxa Shekel, where there's this tax that everyone has to give. No one is exempt, not even a one percenter or people who are in the lowest percent. Everyone must pay this tax. And there is no way out of it. And it's from this, the monies of this tax that went to purchasing the carbonos, the sacrifices in the base of Migdash that were brought on behalf of the Tzibor, on the congregation. And in fact, I believe we may have even spoken about this last year, the very definition of a, a communal sacrifice is not one that was purchased by a person who represents the, commu- the community, but rather it's because it came from funds and monies that the community chipped into, put into a specific box, and it was from there they purchased it. And we, we contrast that to what we call a carbon ashutfim when you have partnership. We don't, a, a communal sacrifice isn't a partnership of everyone in Klal Yisrael, all Jewish people partnering to bring a sacrifice, rather it's a totally different nature. Everyone gives a half shekel, whether you're really wealthy or very poor. Everyone has an equal share, and it's through this that you have to purchase the, um, the sacrifices. It's an important thing, I believe, last year the drusha was. Maybe we'll do it again this year. Let's see if anyone catches it. Uh, I discussed the concept of when you look in the Rambam, where do you think the Rambam, when the Rambam was in his very detailed and, detail-oriented and organized fashion, where would he place this, this mitzvah? To, per, to put money into a communal pot in order to purchase sacrifices. I would say the laws of sacrifices, or perhaps the laws of the Beis Hamikdash, or maybe the laws of tzedakah, because tzedakah go beyond just money to poor people, but just any money that you're expending. Where does he place it? Thank you so much. And for that matter, where does the uh, Gemara place it? In Hilchas Manim. What's Hilchas Manim? The laws of the holidays. Why in the world would the Rambam, who again was extremely oriented, uh, organized, why would he take the mitzvah, the command to give a half shekel, and put it in Hilchos Zmanim, the laws of the holidays? So Rav Asher Weiss explained, because it's less about the money being given and more about creating a day once a year where everyone is giving money. Where everyone is giving not just any money, but giving money in order to say, this is, through this I am joining myself to be part of the Jewish people. That was the way you opted in. And therefore, it's, again, less about the money, but more about having a date on the calendar that we remind each other, we remind ourselves, I'm, much, I'm part of a larger entity than just myself. I'm part of the Jewish people. And therefore, it was, it was set aside as on the day of the calendar. So that's we t- discussed last year. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik as follows. He's bothered by this word, ish kofer nafsho, a ransom for himself. What does it mean, a ransom for himself? person has to pay a ransom. Who are you paying a ransom to? Who's holding you hostage? What exactly is going on? We're paying this half shekel in order to ransom ourselves? It's okay, but they're, they're, they're perhaps... But they're because he, he, he quote-unquote belongs to the Kohen? Although we don't do that. No, one, no mother said that. Ah, keep, the, keep the kid. My mother tried. Now I'm a Kohen. 
I wasn't a Cohen. But, um, or maybe that's why I'm a Cohen. Um, no, there, we're, 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 there is some sort of, again, it's not actual ownership, but there, there is, you are paying a ransom. Here, where's, what's the ransom to? So, Salvation says something fascinating. He writes that this world, this entire world belongs to God, and everything in this world belongs to God. The nature of this world. This whole world belongs to God. In fact, the Gemara and Brachas tells us that if everything belongs to God, so how exactly are we able to enjoy this world? And that's what the Gemara tells us. When we make a blessing, essentially what we're doing is we're, ta- we're asking God for permission to use an item, to make it ours. It really belongs to God. But that's what a bracha, a bracha is almost, think of it as a request, a request. It's asking permission, saying, here's this item you gave to us. Can I use it? Can I utilize it? The Gemara says, because it's actually, I put this on the source sheet, it uses a very strong language. The language of the Gemara is that if you are to partake of enjoyment in this world and you don't ask for permission, it's as if you are taking part of things that belong to heaven. In the world of the Beis HaMikdash, if you were to walk into the Beis HaMikdash, things that are in the Beis HaMikdash, in the, in, in, in the, in this, in the um, temple, that has a status of being temple, the temple owns it, and it's not just some other entity like the Shul owns it, but actually someone who were to take from it, there's a specific prohibition of utilizing things that are designated and sanctified for the base of Megdash. It's, it's a specific prohibition, more than just stealing, but it's actually you're utilizing something that doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. So the Gemara says, you really don't think of it as limited to a space on a hill called the base of Megdash. This entire world belongs to God. If you were to use things in this world without brachas, and obviously we can go back and forth about what requires bracha. There are some things that don't require brachas. How exactly do we quantify that? We, you asked a question once about that as well. But for the most part, most things that we enjoy, you have to make a bracha on. Shinemar, as the Pesach says, Lashem Aratzumulao. God, the, the earth and the skies. We mean the skies, we mean even beyond the skies, it all belongs to God. So how exactly, exactly, how exactly does this world belong to us? And I thought I put this on, on uh, block mode. I didn't. How exactly does, then, how exactly then can we have enjoyment? So the Gemara says as follows. It says this world belongs to God. The land belongs to God. The skies belong to God. Viksiv, Hashemayim, Shemayim, Lashem. We see this in Halal. We'll say it next week. Right? The skies are, are gods. When we say skies, we mean things beyond this world. But earth was given to man. So I, King David, I got a problem. Is it all gods or is the earth given to man? Says the Gemara. Lo kasha. Not a question. Kan kodem bracha, kan bracha. That through, when we make a bracha, we're requesting permission from God. God then gives us permission and says, now it's yours. Before it's God, then it becomes yours. All right, very, that, that's the Gemara. It's a fascinating concept. We're not, I don't want to get into that much. Says the Rasalvechik as follows. There is another way in which we can take something that's consecrated, say, take something that belongs to the temple, take something that's not, that belongs to, let's pay, say, in God's possession, and make it ours. How else can you do that? So, for those, anyone here who's doing Mishnah Yomi with me at all? Okay, no one here. There's a concept that's called being podet, redeeming something. Redeeming the firstborn. The firstborn is Kodesh, belongs to the, not just Akon, but belongs to the Kohanim, however you want to look at it, belongs to God, let's put it that way. We can redeem him by giving money. Saying, this money, not we're buying him back, but we're redeeming him for this, this monetary value, for the coin itself. You can redeem things. You can say, this may belong to God. I'm going to redeem whatever this is and give you the money equivalent or some other equivalent, and then it becomes mundane and unconsecrated. It's a concept of redeeming things. And this is a, there's a ton of literature on this. Right, Sarah Salvechik as follows. We, human beings as well, 
We're created, we live in this world, but we're gods. We, we belong to God. How then do we have permission to have our own agency? Says Rabbi Salavitchik, we have to redeem ourselves. We have to pay a pidyon nafsho. The same way if you are to, if you are do, uh, donated a sheep to the base of Migdash, this is going to be a, a sacrifice and you want to redeem it. So you were to give some sort of money and then you redeem it, it becomes unconsecrated. We can redeem ourselves. And that's what the Machsas HaShekel is about that back then. By giving this half shekel, we are redeeming ourselves and saying now we are no longer, quote unquote, God's possession. If that's true, says the Rav, that's true, says, I have a problem. How then do we redeem ourselves nowadays? We don't have the Machsas HaShekel. We belong to God. How then do we redeem ourselves? So Rabbi Salvechik says, way we redeem ourselves, he calls the three shekels of redemption. The three shekels of redemption are, there are things we can do, there are things we can do that allow us to redeem ourselves the way in which that God will say, now you're, you're yours. And what he lists are three different ways that we can emulate God, and through emulating God, we are redeeming ourselves and making ourselves, A, a more holy person, but also in a way, we're redeemed and it's our own pidyo nafsho. That's but what he says. Is like a mitzvah? Is what a mitzvah? To do what we're going to be doing, you know, to redeem ourselves. Yeah, but my point is, we don't have the, the shekel to do it ourselves, so how then can we redeem ourselves? So again, this is more, this is more um, homiletical, but the point is, Rabbi Salvatore says that there are things we can do through emulating God, and he's going to give three specific ways that we can emulate God, three ways which I don't, probably don't come to mind. When I say emulate God, we'll discuss this Sunday and this year, what does it mean to emulate God? Normally we think of the Gemara tells us just as God is compassionate, we should be compassionate. God clothed the naked, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. We should do the same. God comforted the bereaved. With, uh, at, the, at the end of the Torah, we should do the same. Says, says, says the Rosh he's going to give three different other areas where we can emulate God and through that we can redeem ourselves because this is not just emulating God, but it's three ways that we can give up of ourselves where we can sacrifice to God and it's through that we are through that sacrifice, through giving something up, we are now going to redeem ourselves. And he patterns these after three different ways that we can emulate God. Or we can learn, we can, we can give to God. Let's put it that way. So this is what he says. I want to make sure I have enough time. Because last year I did the same thing and then I ended up, I ended up with, uh, yeah, nothing. There's a famous question in the world of Kabbalah. Anyone here like Kabbalah? Anyone here learn Kabbalah? All right. In the mysticism. The question goes as follows, right? Mystic, mystical teachings, Kabbalah oftentimes deals with the more esoteric nature, meaning to say often the nature of God. Whereas in the Talmud, it's less about the nature of God. We'll get more into this in a minute. It's more about, okay, what does God want from us? What is our orientation towards God? What is our, how do we relate to God in the sense of the command versus the commanded? Kabbalah deals a lot more with the questions of, oftentimes with the questions of, A, what is the nature of God? How does God operate? Those sort of more mystical questions, less rational, if you will. And also what's called theurgy, which is how we can influence God. How can we do certain things and we can influence God? So that's the world, that's a lot more what Kabbalah, in a a real nutshell, what Kabbalah deals with. So the question that the Kabbalists ask is as follows. God is what's called Ein Sof, unending. God is infinite. God is everywhere. And if God is everywhere, God is infinite, God is all-powerful, almighty, then where is there space for us? If God is everywhere, so where is there space for human beings? And we clearly, as much as we have part of God in us, but we, are, we have the ability to sin. We have the ability to have an absence of God. So how can there be a world if God is so powerful and so omnipresent 
and so you know, almost think of it as like if you have a really, really bright light that just can shine through any darkness. So there's no room for darkness. There's no room for anything but that light. In fact, in the world of Kabbalah, it talks about how when God first manifested His presence, it what's called Shvirus Akalim. God put Himself into a vessel, and the vessel just exploded. It couldn't contain the light of God. And if you may be familiar with this um, expression, right? Jonathan Sachs has a book called "To Heal a Fractured World." And in this book, he talks about the idea, based off this idea in Kabbalah, that part of healing a fractured world of, of on one hand, what brings to mind is you have a fractured world, you talk the ethic of responsibility, but coming together, but also this Lorianic idea from the Arizal that when God destroyed this, this vessel exploded, shards of this vessel then went throughout the world. And I'm, I'm giving this really in a, I'm distilling this down to very simple. Shards went to this world, and our job is to pick up these shards and redeem them and to put the vessel back together. Okay. You, not, I don't want to get involved too much in the Kabbalah now, but what I want to discuss is, because this is something even that made itself into the non-Kabbalistic thought. If God is everywhere, where's the room for us? So it says the, the, the Kabbalah, this is found in the Arizal, and there's a concept called simsum. What's simsum? It means to constrict. God said, yes, I may be everywhere, but I am going to make a decision to constrict myself, to pull back, to create a space, a hollow, where, where man can operate. The way in which God does this is God constricts himself and pulls back. God says that although I should be everywhere, I could be everywhere, I'm going to create that hollow, that space where man can thrive. This is the concept of Simpson. Rabbi Salvechik writes that we human beings also have the same obligation. If God is mitzantzim himself, God constricts himself, we too have to constrict ourselves. That there's a place in our life where we have to say, although I may be present. And although I may have a presence, I'm going to pull back. Although I may have a right to something, I'm going to pull back. Although I may be, let's say a right, I'm able to do something, I'm going to exercise the same self-constraint, the same self-control that God exercises in order to create space either for the other or to create space for God. This is what we salvate to right. So this, this manifests itself in a, in a few ways. Uh, what do you say? Correct. Very exactly. The whole concept of of losase is we're we're going to refrain from doing something, and that creates a space. So that Rabbi says one of the places this comes up is actually in the in the realm of of halacha. What is halacha? So on the one hand, halacha is the way we live life, and it's there's there's the assays we do, the positive commands we give charity, and we shake the lulav, and we put on fillin, and whatever keep Shabbos. But what are the losases? Oftentimes, especially the Los Essays, and what it's called in the more moral Los Essays, in the realm of ethics, that is man saying, although I can, I won't. Although no one's going to stop me, because at the end of the day, halacha is a very personal matter. I'm teaching a chassan right now. Uh, I'm teaching a, a, a groom before his wedding. And I said to him last night, at the end of the day, this is between you and your wife, no one knows, and I hope no one cares. People might care, but that's just, they're weird. But... At the, end of the, at the end of the day, this is, between you, this is between you and her. And it comes down to really, are you going to make a decision and the way you're going to act? Are you going to have the self-constraint, exercise of self-control? So Rabbi Salvechik writes as follows. It often happens that a man takes a wife when he is 30 or 40 years of age, when after going to great expense, he wishes to associate with her. She says to him, I've seen a rose-red speck of menstrual blood. He immediately recoils. What made him keep away from her? Was it an iron fence? Did a serpent bite him? Did a scorpion sting him? Only the words of the Torah, which are soft as a bed of lilies. A dish of meat is placed before a man. He's told that some forbidden fat has fallen into it. He withdraws his hand from the food. What's stopping him from tasting it? 
Did a serpent bite him? Did a scorpion sting him? Only the words of Torah, which are soft as a bed of lilies. And what he's saying is, and something that we, um, something that we know, so oftentimes people who aren't familiar with halacha, they don't get it. Like, you, can't you bend a little bit? Like, really, what's stopping you? Okay, so maybe a speck of milk went into that meat. I said, no. If you, what halacha says to us, what halacha does to us, it, it allows us to exercise the self-control and say, yes, I can. No one's going to stop me. No one's going to care if I go and eat that. But we have the power to metzamsim, to exercise self-control, to exercise self-restraint. For whatever reason, we're doing so. Because we feel that it, it's healthier. I don't think kosher food is healthy. I mean... Have you, have you seen Chalant? But because, whatever it may be, uh, we, we, um, whatever reason we decide and what, what motivates us, ultimately we have the ability to metzamsim ourselves. Says Rabbi Ruben Ziegler, who was who's one of the primary, I would say, teachers of the Rav's Torah now. He, I think he runs the Torah Harav Institute, which is an institution dedicated to publishing the works of Rabbi Salvechik once he passed away. He writes, according to the Rav, God does not, does not desire that man live an outwardly ascetic ex- existence, nor does he wish for man to adopt an ethereal and abstract spirituality. So this is also very important, that in a way, it's easier to live a life, when you commit to living a life of asceticism, of being removed from the world, of removing yourself from temptation, of saying, I'm going to sequester and cloister myself off, and not going to engage in any of worldly pleasure, whatever it may be. So in a way, there's a, there's a certain ease to living that life because there's a, lot, there's a lot less need to exercise that self-control muscle. You're not tempted by things because you just totally write it off. You don't even know the pleasure. Or you go and lock yourself in some tower somewhere where you don't have access to it. There's, again, I'm not knocking it in the sense that it's not easy, that it's easy, but at the same time, it's easier than saying, I'm going to involve myself in the world. Halacha, halacha, which is also interesting. As I say, Kabbalah is much more esoteric. Halacha is very much grounded in this world. Halacha, we're dealing with pots and pans. We're dealing with, with wood and, 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 and the sukkah. And the, it's very much in this world. And yet, when Halacha says, we're supposed to enjoy this world. We're supposed to, the, everything created, the Ramban writes in a letter. Or Nachmanich writes, everything God created has a purpose. Which means, even things that could be used for terrible things could be used for wonderful things. I said to the Tzachasim last night, the, the Gemara in Sota tells us, that when a husband and wife are in a healthy relationship, then God is there, is there in between them. Meaning what you think would be in, in the way in which the Western world, or Western thought so long, for so long looked at, looked at this action as, as, as base, as animalistic, we say God is there as well. And then the Gemara says, and when it's not done appropriately, when it's not done with love and care, then ish is between them, fire is between them. Fire is burning them. Meaning to say that everything can be used for tremendous positive or tremendous negative. It's not, it's not good, it's not things are just amazing or things are terrible. Therefore, when you live that sort of life where you're involved in this world, where you're trying to enjoy and be part of this world, God wants man to lead a life, and enjoy, a full and enjoyable natural life. However, and this is the key, he must instill it with meaning and direction thus grounding his spirituality in his concrete life. This is, by the way, just another tangent quickly. Resalvedic has a book called Halachic Man. Halachic Man, he creates these two typologies of one person who is very much the Kabbalist, who's pining to go to the world, to the other world, who feels like living in this world of temptation, living in this world of sin. It's, there's no godliness here. How do you encounter God? You try to stretch and go to the other world. Go beyond this world. Go to the go to the uh, go to, go go where 
there is, again, you don't have this physical world. Right? Salvation talks about the halachic man as the opposite. His goal, his desire is to bring God into this world. To say this world itself can be redeemed. That I can create a space for God in this world. Not that I have to find a way to transcend this world, but to bring God into this world. In fact, there's two Mishnayos in Pirkei Avos, in Ethics of Our Fathers. One Mishnah says that this world that we live in now is a prosdor to the Olam Haba. This world, welcome, this world is an antechamber to the world to come. Almost to say that why are we in this world? We're in this world because we have to, for whatever reason, purify our bodies and, and keep mitzvahs. But ultimately, the point is to get to the world to come. There's another Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. That's the more Kabbalistic approach. The other Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says, no. Yafa sha'achas ba'olam hazmi kol olam haba. Better is one moment in this world than all, than all the world to come. Meaning to say one moment in this world where we can still do mitzvahs and we can still bring God into this world than going to the next world where we don't have this temptation. We don't have that sort of physical experience. For Rabbi Salavechik, we're supposed to live a full and enjoyable natural life. Thus, our directive is to give it direction, to give it meaning, to bring the spirituality into it. For example, if unrestrained and unredeemed, the sexual act can be brutish and dehumanizing. Man succumbs to a frenzy of primitive passion and treats his sexual partner as thinks, as mere means to, to fulfill his desire. However, within the framework of marriage, and at the permitted time, sexuality becomes something beautiful and sacred. Hedged in, by, by, hedged in by prohibitions, it turns it into an act conforming to God's will. Uh, and he quotes, between husband and wife, it expresses love and commitment, which are desired by God. Furthermore, it actually becomes a vehicle for fulfilling mitzvot, such as procreation, and the obligation of conjugal relations. Thus, one's physical life becomes the fountainhead of kedusha, of sanctity. It's a powerful idea. Without the direction, it's just it's brutish, it's, it's it's selfish. When you hedge it in, I like language used. When you hedge it in, when you hedge it in, so then it allows it to become something that's the fountainhead of kedusha. You would think no, sanctity's in the base medrash, sanctity's in show, everything else maybe can be used as a vehicle. Somehow, it becomes the fountainhead of kedusha. So you asked me this question last time. But that, that, there could, yeah, there could be a technical, more technical reason. Also, there are often times when it comes to mitzvot that are between man and man, we don't like making brachas. And one of the reasons is the question is what? Yeah, like Mashallah is coming up. Why don't we make Mashallah Manas? Because the, um, the Manos Halevi, interesting parish, she writes the point, purpose of Mashallah Manos is to increase friendship and, and brotherhood among people. Because if you are to go, walk over to you and say, Here's your Mashallah Manos, Brachata, Shemak Melachalam, you know, all mitzvot Mashallah Manos. Thank you so much for letting me fulfill my mitzvah. That, that cheapens it in a way. It takes away the... It's like, I only did this because I was commanded to. And the idea is, no, it's supposed to... Again, we, there's a, obviously, we're set aside a day here to do it, but it's supposed to come from a natural place so that it increases the brotherhood and friendship. So that, that's one of the reasons in general when it comes to mitzvah, it's been Adam L'chaveira, between man and man, we're more hesitant to make brachos. I didn't say we never do, but we're more hesitant to make it. And also sometimes we do it, like, for instance, we make a bracha at a wedding, Birchus Erison. But that might not be a bracha on the mitzvah as much as it's a blessing of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for giving us this institution. Why would he, It's a very interesting bracha, by the way, once we're on the topic. We say, thank you, God, let's, let's, let's look it up. It's, this is what happened last time, I'm telling you. I ended up doing this, and then we never finished, but it's okay. So um, next week, I'm, I'm, do, I'm, I'm performing a wedding, and I'm going to make the following bracha. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating bracha when you read it in English and you think, th think about reading this as someone who's totally uninitiated. This bracha is made at every single wedding. Not the one you make at the base. Okay. 
Atfilos Aderech. Maybe you should make that before a wedding also. Wayfarer's prayer. Um, the uh, where is this? Not Asher Yatsar. One second here. I'm not going to do this sitter next week. So actually, the, I have what's called a madrich. It has all the blessings I need for all life cycle events. Here we go. Weddings in Shevrach is 1048. Okay. Good year for the Jews. No, I have no idea. So says the bracha as follows, 1048. We sit, we sit there under the chuppah. And we say, Baruch Atah, this, 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 this blessing actually is found in the tractic subas. It's found in the Talmud. Baruch Atah Hashem Lekein Melchalad. Blessed you are Lord, King of the Universe. Who? Who sanctified us with his commandments. And you'd expect to say, and gave us this beautiful institution of marriage, and now we can live in harmony, and blah, blah, right? That's what you'd expect to say, right? And then we'd all throw rose petals. Who's, who, is, ready? who has commanded us regarding forbidden unions? Who has forbidden us from the betrothed woman while permitting us to those who have been married by means of chuppah and kedushin? Blessed of you, our Lord, who sanctifies his people Israel by means of chuppah and kedushin. A little bit of a anticlimactic thing. You imagine you walk down the you walk down the aisle. She's walking around seven times. Like again, you're, put your mind the uninitiated. It's all beautiful. The music is playing. The little kid, run, the flower boy and flower girl, run down. Now we have flower boys. They all run down the aisle. Everyone's happy, and the guy gets up there and reads it in English. Who has forbidden the betro- for, forbidden unions? Like now, really? Save that for the sheer. Like now it is. What's going on? And what's even more fascinating is Rabbi Tom writes in Psachim on Dav Zayin and Alf in 7a. This isn't a blessing we're making on the wedding. This is a birchas hashavach, a blessing of praise. It's a blessing of praise. What is going on here? I think it's exactly right, Salvation's point. Because what we're saying is what makes the marriage so special and so unique? What takes what otherwise would be a brutish act and gives it direction and gives it meaning, gives it spirituality so that it becomes the fountainhead of sanctity? It's exactly this point that we hedge in the marriage with these prohibitions to create this entity that we have in front of us. And that's what we're praising God for. Thank you for, take, for allowing us to enjoy this world and not just enjoy it, to bring sanctity into it, give it direction, and, and ultimately find even more meaning than we would have found otherwise. That's what, that's number one. So that's how we're mitzahamsim ourselves. And now I say I did the same thing I did last year and I'm running out of time. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip the next one, although I think it's fascinating. He says the other way a person can do it, I'm just going to say really quickly, that's, that's the shekel number one. First half shekel, the way we redeem ourselves, what we give to God, is that there are places in, in our life where we say, just like you, God, constrict yourself, pull back, exhibit self-control, we will do the same. We'll pull back, we'll have self-control, self-restraint, we're not going to do things that no one's stopping us from doing. That's number one. Number two is he writes as follows, and this I'll say very quickly so I can get to number three. Although, just because last year I know I didn't get to number three at all. And that is in the, in the world of honor. In the, world of, in the world of honor, God, as we know, is hidden. Oftentimes, God exercises what's called Hester upon him. He hides his face. He hides his face. God's always there, but we, we don't always see God. And sometimes in our darkest moments, we see God. Sometimes we don't see God. We wonder, where is God? So Rabbi Salvechik writes, that's, in a way, that's our job as well, that we have to recognize it's not about the honor. But more than that, he says something very interesting. If you were to look at the biblical characters... Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov. What do we know about them? 
Can you write a history book about them? A few minutes ago, I just saw that there's a Jewish Lives series. Jewish Lives, Yale University has something called Jewish Lives. I happen to think they're a wonderful series. Oftentimes they'll find a scholar in an area who may have written a dissertation or done a lot of work on a specific scholar, and they say, can you write a book for a, a non-trained uh, non non historian? I'm not going to say the layperson because they are they're very, I mean, they are for lay people, but they're, they're, they're rigorously done. Great scholarship. The Yale, Yale Book Series, Jewish Live Series, and they have now probably 30 or 40 of them. So there's a book coming out March 15th. My birthday's March 29th, just letting you know. Um, on Elie Wiesel. On Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel, there's a whole book about him. Try to write a book on one of the biblical, biblical characters. There are a few Yale Live Series on them, but ultimately there's not much we know about Avram. We, can, we know the basics, and we know more about, more about him than, than Yitzhak. But like, fill a book. No, we, we can't. We can't. We can probably fill a paragraph. We kind of know maybe when he, who, we know his parents are, that we have some names. We know that he grew up in Orkazdim, and at some point he rebelled. What, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm reading a book by Harry Truman right now, by J, J, James McCullough, uh, John McCullough. Great book. He's great. So I'm, I'm reading it for a second time now. I decided I have to start reading these again. Otherwise it becomes history in my, in my brain. I know what, he, what his grades were in high school. The book's about that thick. I know the letters he wrote to his... I know what he thought about everything. I know what he planted in the year of 1915. I know what he was doing. Avram, I kind of... Our biblical hero, right? The, I kind of know he rebelled. The only way I know really how he, about that is not from the text because there's a midrash about it. But now we have to understand that, how to interpret midrash. I know then God says go somewhere. I know he gets to Israel. He goes down to... It's very murky. And then at a certain point, Sarah dies, and then we know nothing about Avram for the rest of his life. You, we can't really paint portraits of our, of our biblical heroes. Take it a step further. The, perhaps the most august and important body of Jewish people that ever existed was the Anche Knesset Hagadola. At the cessation of prophecy, we Jews, we relied on prophecy. At a certain point, we no longer had prophets, and there was a transition within Judaism to the world of the, of the scholar, the rabbi. He didn't have a prophet anymore. He had now a scholar and rabbi. This body of people who did that were the Anche Knesset And Let me give you some questions they had to deal with. Until now, you felt like you wanted, you wanted, you thank, uh, Thanksgiving welled up, a feeling of Thanksgiving welled up inside you. You went to the temple, you brought a sacrifice, the carbon toto. Until now, every single day, morning and evening, or afternoon, they brought carbono sacrifices. Yes, there always was prayer, but it was institutionalized because there was a base of Megdash. Suddenly, it's like we live in a world bereft of God's overt presence, how are we going to relate to him? Well, let's bring sacrifice. We can't bring sacrifices. There is no temple. It's been raised to the ground, renamed, renamed Alakakapitalina, but the Romans have taken over and we're, and we're done. Well, prayer. Oh, I don't know how to pray. Do you know how to pray? I don't know. I can say some things. What if I pray for the wrong thing? Comes along the Anshikines Sagadola, and they created what we now know as our Tzvila. Our Shemun Esri comes from them. They wrote it down. Can you name who these people are? We know a few of them. Mordechai was on it. Mordechai, we know. He's, he's our friend. He's coming up in a few weeks. It's his time to shine. But other than him, we know Ezra, Nehemiah, Shimon, HaTzadik, and that's all. Um, we knew there were prophets among this group. Again, this was at, this, at the end of the uh, era of prophecy. Who were they? We don't know, right, Samar Salvechik. Why did they not include their names in the oral law through which they made their greatest impact? And says Rabbi Salvechik, because this reflects the obscurity of God himself as he hid behind a cloud on Mount Sinai. So do we that there is this concept that just because you make a huge difference doesn't mean you need to get the attention. 
This is one of the, he gives a couple answers, but his, the idea is that just as God gave the Torah from amidst clouds, obscuring himself, clouds are, you can't see, there's no clarity there, this, this sense of obscurity. So too, even these men throughout history did the same. They did the same. Avram, what do we know about Avram? Only things we, that the Torah fills is important that we know for a lesson. What he ate for breakfast, not relevant, not relevant. There's the, the concept of nelam, of, of hiding, of, of, of Hester upon him. The same way God hides himself, so too we can hide ourselves as well. Oh, I just want to say about this. But um, should, we, should we just stay on this and not get to the next point? I don't know. What? I get the next point next to you. That's right. So I'll tell you what. There, this, I've been thinking a lot about this because we live in a world, especially in the world of social media and the internet, which is Norma's favorite topic. Norma's become an influencer. She's on TikTok. I, I saw the videos. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have so much to say. I haven't asked. Please ask a question. So there, I think there's a, there's a, a sense now where people feel the need to be famous. Teenagers, especially teenagers, but I think it's everyone really. There's a need to be famous to do to do grand things, to do big things, to make a difference. And especially, it's accentuated when you start seeing how someone does something in some small providence in some random Far East country, and in a minute, the whole world can know about it. It's like, this person's now catapulted to fame. It's like, wow, look how the difference they're making. Look what they're doing. What am I doing? I get up, I feed my kids breakfast, I go to show, I come home, I go to work. Like, what am I doing? You're not doing anything grand. It's not being written about on the news. No one seems to care. There's this feeling that we need to be famous. I think this also plays into the same idea what Rabbi is saying is that not just hiding ourselves because there's a, a tenua factor of God hides himself, we should hide ourselves too, but it's also learning to appreciate who you are and the meaningful contribution you can make to life and how you can be meaningful even though it's not famous and not known and people aren't lauding you for it. That just living life the way in which you're supposed to, that in and of itself should be enough. <coughs> even though it's quote-unquote obscured. There's an article I read a, a while ago in the New York Times called You'll Never Be Famous and That's Okay. And in it, she's an author, her name is Emily, I don't know how to pronounce her middle name, she's uh, Iranian Smith. She didn't marry an Iranian, clearly. She wrote a book uh, called The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in, the world obsessed with, in a World Obsessed with Happiness. I read the book a few months ago. But she writes about this, this very idea where, where teenagers feel this, she writes, having idealistic aspirations is of course part of being young. But thanks to social media, purpose and meaning have been conflated with glamour. Extraordinary lives look like the norm on the internet. Yet the, the idea that a meaningful life must be, must be or appear remarkable is not only elitist, but also misguided. Over the past five years, I've interviewed dozens of people across the country about what gives their lives meaning. And I've read through thousands of pages of psychology, philosophy, and neuroscience. Research to understand what truly brings people satisfaction. So again, that, that's a great line that we've conflated, we've conflated purpose and meaning with glamour. And then she goes, the most meaningful lives I've, just, I've learned are often not the extraordinary ones. They're the ordinary ones lived with dignity. God hides himself to teach us that you don't need to do things that everyone notices in order to live a meaningful life. Yes? Only part of the story was how much it was worth. And in today's world, that is very dangerous. 
euphoric, unfortunate issues associated with money. And so if the world has changed somewhat, and some of our mystery hopes to compensate the hatred for the Jews. And I was really waiting for an insert from one of the rabbinical organizations to say what, why the Torah, the ancient Torah, is so valuable. I, I can tell you about it. And I have a lot of interest in this. I know you can, but I, it really bothered me. You should know, um, what, actually, it's, this, it's also in this week's parasha as well. So I'm going to stop the recording here, even though it's